The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. You are listening to the Burroughs of Berea. Side Studies. All right, welcome back to the Burroughs of Berea. I'm Rick Welch, and to my right is Cherry Lewis. Hello. And to my left, straight out of Compton, Mr. Ralph Hicks. Hello. And behind the glass, Rocket Man. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Bishop. Sound ex- sound engineer extraordinaire, Andy Bishop of Draft Studio. Sounds extreme. Yeah, this show is going to take a little while. I don't know how long it's going to be, but I am going to, we're going to try to get through this. I'm trying to complete this uh, side study on Satan, and it has been a very long side study, a lot longer than I thought it would be. And so, you know, here we are. So you guys received the notes, you saw the novel. It's going to take a while to get through this, especially with us talking. But I would like to complete this so that we can get into the mystery of God, and then we'll move on to the Olivet Discourse to finish out season one's side studies. How you doing, Ralph? I'm doing all right. I'd, uh, my head's swimming because I, I didn't realize there were so many names for Satan and so many versions and over the centuries, things changed with different religions and, uh, you know, Greek, Hebrew. Um, there was a lot of information that I found. Um, and so I'm my head's still kind of swimming. I'm looking forward to what you have to say. Yeah, I think um, just like a- Andy said in the very first one, we get our learnings from TikTok. And that's really where it started, you know, that, that silly little... Uh, video clip, you know. I still like the idea of uh, fan fiction. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. Satan comes from uh, fan fiction of the Bible. Yeah. I mean, the modern day understanding of it, t- t- somewhat. I mean, she is somewhat correct. I give her the correct as far as Lucifer and the translation of a lowercase word. I could give her that. But as far as what Isaiah is saying, there is definitely something, you know, as we got into it, and that's you can see that he's talking about something a little otherworldly than just the king of Babylon. It's definite. It, it's He's talking about something that happened pre-man, I think, is what's going on. So the, trying to understand it is, uh, Cherry and I were talking about it on the way over here. It's, uh, we get into the conversation about fairness, what's fair, you know, in life. There aren't very many things that are fair. Right? No. So what's your biggest struggle when it comes to fairness? Uh, based, based on the things that we've been studying. Well, you know, first reading it, like I was saying on the way over here, if I first read it, it just seems kind of, you read it and it seems very unfair and it's, I've questioned a lot of things. Um, but then I have to take a step back and think, well, like I said before, God is God and he knows better than I, and so I have to remember that to help get through the feelings of that just seems kind of overbearing on his part or unfair, ruthless kind Mm -hmm. of in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 
coming from being raised atheist, it was very easy for me just to discount it and say, you know, either A, this book is garbage, or B, you know, this is sadistic or whatever. It was easy for me to say that, you know. But when I have my personal experience with the Lord and and through my salvation and then all the things that happen on the inside of me, then I, it forced me to look into it a little bit deeper. And I wrestle with it. I wrestle with it all the time. But I don't, to this, at this point in my life, I don't have a problem with fairness. Like, you know, when I think about Job, it's easy, it's easy to say that. I, I didn't have my kids, you know, murdered, and I didn't have everything that I've ever worked for taken away from me. So it's easy for me to say, oh, yeah, I mean, I can see where Job's coming from. I, I can't see where Job's coming from. Right. But I can understand what was being, what was happening to Job. It was like this cosmic test. Uh, is there a man that will love God despite any of his circumstances? I wonder a little bit about the the death of his children and and the fact that like getting new children is some sort of replacement for that. It doesn't seem like that to me, but I think maybe there's a, some sort of historical context where that makes more sense where you live in a world a couple thousand years ago or more because that would be Old Testament, right? It is, yeah. Uh, yeah, like but a couple thousand years ago, et cetera where, you know, probably the death of a family member is, it's probably never a thing that a human is like, any human is like particularly accustomed to, but the death of a family member would be significantly more common. Like your whole family would, you know, get wiped out by something, a disease, hunger, I don't know. But, you know, mortality would be, you would know way more of your own people that were dead by the time you hit 40. Infant mortality and child mortality uh, and and overall mortality was a lot higher back then, you know. So you generally lost one or two kids um, in childbirth, and then if not, maybe within the first couple of years. And then you know, average age back then must have been forty or fifty. Uh, so I, I would imagine that even though it's hard every time you lose a family member, it would be different for them being a little more used to it than it would be for us. So for instance, my father grew up on a farm and his father grew up on a farm and his father lost three brothers and he lost a sister. Um, and that happened in the 18, the 1700s and the 1800s a lot more than it does now. So that's exactly what I'm thinking. Like the lens of that story, uh, that story needs to be viewed through the lens of like that sort of history where losing children is as much as it's still, I'm sure, awful 2,000, 3,000 years ago, whatever, uh, it would have been way more common. I don't I, know. It's just something I was thinking about. Like like that loss for that man would have been less significant than it would have been for one of us or less extraordinary than mm. it would have been for somebody from this time. And that doesn't mean it's less meaningful from the past. Right. It just means it would be way more common then than it would be now. Oh, I agree with that. And they've done studies on that as well. And I, I do like the fact that you said we should look at this in the lens of the people and the time. Because I think sometimes we get caught up in who we are and what our definitions of things are. And I really like this study because I found a lot of definitions for Satan and over the course of centuries, different things and different languages as well. So I actually, I, I like this because it's helping us dig in deeper and it also allows us to look back uh, and try to understand uh, why people put certain meanings to things. I kind of though wonder 
even then, I mean, if you lose multiple children uh, over the course of time, but all at once, kind of, I wonder how common that really was. You know, he lost all of them. Oh, I Again, I don't think it was unimportant or I don't think people probably right. felt any less. But, but I just wonder like how, like looking at it, even from that standpoint of how mortality in children and things were more common, there were so many things going on. It just kind of makes me wonder because of the fact that he lost them all at one time. Oh, it still would have been, I think, a massive yeah. loss by any measure. I'm just oh, saying. Oh, I agree. It would have been weird. Yeah, it would have been I a massive it, loss by any measure. I'm just saying it's maybe in the context of that time would have looked a little bit different than it does now. And but, yeah. and it's a weird thing to parse. Like, it sounds like I'm parsing the value of a human life across time. And that's not what I'm doing. But you do, like, there is an experiential thing, you know, yeah. that yeah. changes that changes perception. So you just described audience relevance, the basic biblical hermeneutic. You have to understand, like you said, look through the lens. That's true about anything that we're going to read in the scripture. You have to think about the audience that's reading what's been written. And if you don't understand the culture, then sometimes you don't understand anything about what you're reading. We sometimes we read the uh, the epistles of Paul, like they're a newspaper article for us today. Right. You know, a lot of people read the book of Revelation as if it's literally speaking directly to them in this generation right now. And that, you know, Jesus could come back at any second, you know, and that's what we hear. And without, you know, further deep study into the Old Testament, into the New Testament, and that crossover, there's no way that you would understand what that book is even saying. You have to understand that that book was written to the audience of its time, to the seven churches that were in Asia Minor, not to the church here in Hendersonville. You know, it's not written to us. Right. Absolutely. It's for our benefit. So as we read these things, what, what we're getting ready to get into today, you know, we have Satan in the New Testament, but there's a couple more. Every time I come back into the study, I always bring something else from the Old Testament. And uh, Ralph, did you bring the ESV or can you read the notes that I sent today? I do have the, I do have the notes. So what I want to do, I want to read uh, the, there's a parallel passage. You'll find like the book of Kings and Chronicles or Samuel, they actually have the same stories. Uh, but maybe they're a little bit different, kind of like the Gospels, where they'll tell something very similar, but there'll be a little bit, you know, differences here and there. So um, at the top of my notes, I go into, uh, I believe it is First Chronicles 21, 1 through 3. And what I want the audience to do is to pay attention to what is being said about this one instance with King David numbering the people. And I really want you to pay attention to who is causing him to do it. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my lord the king, all of them the lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Yeah, that's good. That's far enough. It's it, the basic thing I want you to pick up is what it's saying. Well, there. that same sentence is in the next. That's right. And the next one is almost word for word, except for right. I think a couple of words. Yeah, and it's that's what we're looking for. So it's 
in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Read that one where it starts with, again, the anger. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Great. So now do me a favor. Read the first verse again. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Okay, now read the first verse of that second passage. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So did you see what's what's happening here in this parallel passage? Basically what's going on is it says, Then Satan stood against Israel, but in the parallel passage in Samuel, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David. So basically, here we are again with Hasatan, the adversary. But for some reason, in 2 Samuel, it talks about it was the Lord that incited him to do this. So to me, it's obvious, it's very obvious that the translation, those that translated this, were inserting that word. It is Hasatan. It is it is an adversary. I looked it up in the Strong's yeah, Concordance. The, the, the Hebrew the term, yeah, is ad, uh, accuser or adversary. Right. So, was the Lord the accuser or the adversary against David in this? It seems that way. That's what I was thinking. I was like, well, Jesus, that's it's just... Well, I didn't read it that way. Oh, how? Uh, how and because of the words after the Lord, was kindled... So someone was kindling this fire, meaning an accuser or, or some tempter. Does it remind you of what is in Job? Do you remember what we talked about, how he said that, uh, he said, hast thou considered my servant Job? Yeah. And then later, after he kills everybody, you know, after he kills all his kids and everything, and he says, you and, you know, he, he didn't curse me even though you incited me. Uh-huh. So it's the nature of this character. It's the nature of this Old Testament character. We don't know if it's the same character, because it, he's really not named. It's the translators that are naming him and calling him Satan. But it is not. it is a function. It is not a proper pronoun. So when I look at it, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Mm-hmm. Then you go down, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, comma, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Same as when he allowed Satan to come against Job, it makes me wonder if the he in that, it says, and he incited David. So you could go, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, comma, then it says, then Satan stood against Israel. So how do I not know that the same thing didn't happen there, that God was angered with the Israelites? So therefore, he allowed Satan to be there to incite David to do the things. That's exactly what's going on. It's kind of how I read that. that and that, that is exactly what's happening. What I'm saying is that it's not a proper pronoun. When you put a name to it, then there's a value that comes with that name. It builds the character. 
that there is no character in the Old Testament called Satan. There is a name, Hasatan or Satan. It's found in Zechariah, it's found in Job, it's found here. But they use that that word Satan. So my only point is, is that there are heavenly beings, and there is especially one that we know of that incites, that does things to incite things. So, uh, Ralph, would you please go to um, First Kings? So I want I want everyone to understand. You know, we talked about the divine council, okay. I don't know if you've listened to the past episodes where we talk about the Divine Council. So, the Divine Council are the heavenly host. They're described. They're going to be described in this in First Kings. They're also going to be described, uh, you know, at the birth of Christ. Whenever the shepherds look up on the side, they see the host, the heavenly host, you know, praising God. You know, and so there, there are these heavenly beings that surround God at His throne, that are doing His bidding. They're worshiping Him. They're doing His bidding. That's the watchers, right? Yeah, well, no, not necessarily. Yes and no. There are obviously there are good watchers and there are bad watchers. We learned that in Daniel. But the watchers, pretty much from the book of Enoch, are the ones that were the fallen angels that then, you know, slept with the daughters of men and made the giants in the land, the Nephilim. You know, that's who right. the watchers are. There are some theoretically good watchers like Michael and Gabriel which are archangels. So if you would, Ralph, read this and pay close attention. What I, what I want everybody to understand is that obviously God is sovereign and is able to do whatever he wants, but I want you to listen to the surrounding things around God and then what happens through his prophet, Micaiah. Ahab and the false prophets. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first of the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. 
And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we resign? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on the right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go at and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah the son of Chanah came near and struck Micah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into the inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the thirty-two captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel, so they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians, until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot, And about sunset a cry went through the army, Every man to his city, and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are, not, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. 
Thank you, Ralph. Yeah, that was a very long read there. And I wanted to make sure that we said the whole story so that you understood that Micaiah was the true prophet of God in relationship to the 400 prophets that were standing there before him. If you saw when he walked in the room and Micaiah walks in, they're like, listen, we're all prophesying that they're going to win up at Ramoth Gilead, so why don't you just help us, you know, show, you know, favor on our eyes. Let's let's look good for these guys. And he's like, I'm not going to say anything unless it's coming from God, period. So then when Jehoshaphat, you, you can just picture it. Jehoshaphat and Ahab are sitting together, and Ahab is like, here he comes. Every time I see this guy, all he does is prophecy garbage for me. And so he's like, so tell me, Micaiah, what's going to happen? He's like, eh, go on. You're going to win. And he's like, how many times have I asked you to always tell me the truth? And he was like, well, God says that, the, that there's a sheep with no shepherd. Everybody just needs to go back to the house. And he turns to Jehoshaphat, you know what Ahab does, and he's like, see, I told you, this guy's got it out for me, right? I like that he was like, can't you just say something nice? And he's like, God said you were a dick. It's not my fault. <laughs> Pretty much. Wow. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much what it boils down to. And but what I wanted you to to pay attention to is what Micaiah says when he finally breaks it down for us. He he tells us very clearly that he saw God sitting on his throne, right? So he says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. There is the divine council. Okay. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So the Lord's asking his heavenly host, Who's going to be the one that's going to do this? So, and one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. That's what's going on behind the scenes. All of these men are doing their thing, but behind the scenes, there is going to be a spirit that's going to go in to those prophets. So I started thinking about something. So the prophets wanted to impress Jehoshaphat and Ahab, and Zedekiah had said as much, right? Zedekiah was so disgusted by what Micaiah said, that he smacked him in the face. Kind of like what happened to Jesus, remember? When they smacked him in the face. Yes. Who hit you? Remember that? So it kind of reminded me of that. But Micaiah, you know, he didn't waver, and he he said what he saw. But we, he's telling him. He's telling these men. He said, we're going to put a lying spirit in all these prophets that are around here. I mean, that's, to me, it's shocking. I don't know if it's shocking to you, but it is. I mean, it just, the more I learn about these other gods, these other heavenly hosts, the divine council that I've been talking about, the more it's helping me understand the development of Satan over time. Satan, it becomes very clear when you get to the New Testament, by the time Jesus arrives, the earth is absolutely gone berserk demons are possessing people, something that was never done in the past. It's something, it's like they developed and it's new. We talked about it in the last side study. Mm -hmm. So when we get now that we've seen this in the Old Testament, we see, you know, the Lord's sovereignty and all of, you know, all of those um, heavenly hosts. I want to go back. Do you remember last 
in the last uh, side study, Andy, that I said that the first thing to call Jesus the Holy One of God was the demon. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, so I'm going to read these two these two parts right here. This is a parallel story, somewhat, in the Gospels. Mark chapter 1. We read this in the last uh, side study, but I'm going to continue it on now, since we are now with Satan in the New Testament, or especially in the Gospels. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 34. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So by the time you get to the Gospels, it's the demons that are they're very aware, okay? Now, when we go into this parallel passage in Luke chapter 4, you have to remember that this is both of these accounts here, which is a similar account. This is right after Christ was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, which we went over last in the last study. So this is what happens directly after that, okay? So if you remember, he was baptized, he comes up out of the water, God speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then he goes through those temptations, which we talked about. Now, after this, he's coming out of the wilderness. So in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 41, here's where we go, where Jesus begins his ministry. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. So this is right after that temptation, he's coming in the spirit. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, this is his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I love this part. This is is so awesome. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Sound familiar? Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, "'You are the Son of God!' But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. We have to do a lot of reading in the New Testament before men start calling him the Christ, even though he's doing some of these miraculous things. But it was the demons who knew exactly who he was. So my point in bringing this out in this study of Satan is that the demons are all under the control of one master ruler. It's the one that they call Beelzebub. He's basically the Lord of the house. That's what Beelzebub is, Lord of the house. So he's the prince of the power of the air. He is the king of the world in which we live in, or at least he was at that time. So when Christ arrives on the scene, anything that was evil knew who he was and what he was coming for, which is to destroy them. So, Andy, have you ever heard any of this? No, no. Not a bit. Not that not that I can recall. Of course it's possible I've just blanked it. I have I have just I have the memory of Swiss cheese just naturally. It didn't come I didn't earn it with age. I've just always been like that. Yeah. I was just curious, you know, because this was never I mean, yeah, we've read it, but this was never something that I had really been taught or had this explained to me about. But the nature of evil, you know, about Satan. So for brevity, I'm sorry, we're, we're reading a lot today, but we have to because we have to, we're going to try to finish this study here so that we can get on to the next one. But I really want, I've, I've got to drive this home. Uh, 
Cherry, do you mind reading Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 through 32? Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope." Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you." Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Thank you. Can I ask a question? Sure. Because a couple of weeks ago, we talked about something, and I said I thought that it would be wonderful that uh, Satan could be forgiven. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember anywhere in the Bible. Here it says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not. I don't remember ever reading where Satan, the devil, whomever you want to call, ever did that. Blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Well, he did it in the beginning. He did it in the very beginning. I just don't remember reading it. I don't remember reading that that's what he said. It, 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 well, you, it, it's inferred based on what he did. You know, when we went through the pseudepigrapha of the life of Adam and Eve, that's not Scripture, and I don't even know if you know what I'm talking about, but the... There was a moment in time where this Beazable, who is also known as the serpent, who is also the devil, was in the garden, and he deceived Eve, and he lied. He said, because this is what God said. This is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. God said, if on the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die, he said, you will not surely die. That is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit in regards to Satan and God, because he came right out and lied. Now, man was created by God in his image, and it was expected for those, the angels, to be ministering spirits to man. Satan had no interest in doing any of that. 
In fact, according to the life of Adam and Eve, the reason why, and we don't know this for certain because, again, this is not biblical canon. This is just a pseudepigraphal writing. But in order for us to understand a little bit better, it makes sense from the first century that, you know, some of these New Testament books do borrow from the pseudepigrapher. So I'm saying, hmm, if it's understandable, to me it seems right that that particular demon, Gadriel, which was in the book of Enoch, you know, who gave the blows to man and deceived Eve, that he said that he was, that Michael had commanded him to worship the image of God, that man that was made, and he refused because man was younger than him and wasn't as glorious as he was, so he wouldn't do it. So when he, when he went against God, from that moment, that was it for Satan. That was the end of it. I mean, it was from that moment the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. It was over. Satan was prior to man. Satan deceived God's creation. And so he will end up in the pit. There will be no forgiveness for Satan. There will be no forgiveness for the fallen angels. They will be eternally tormented or completely eradicated, however you want to look at it. But that's the end of them. Satan. I'm not saying that about all men. I'm just saying about Satan. Does that answer your question or no? It is an answer to the question. It's, it still doesn't point me to where it says that, but that's that's okay for now because that gives me something to go do. Well, I'm curious. Is there a reason why you want Satan to be forgiven? No. Um, it, it, it. I don't know if I've ever thought about wanting him to be. I just I, I, I've thought about it over time. If everyone can be forgiven, why can't he be forgiven? Mm-hmm. Well. I'm going to upset you even more, <laughs> because the next part is when Satan decides to become, to infiltrate a human being. Okay, now I'm sure that he's incited men, he's done things, he's probably done this before. But remember what Jesus said to the scholars of this time. He said, if I cast out demons by using the prince of demons, Beelzebub, then it's a house divided against itself. And he said then if that's the case, then that's who you're doing it by. But if I do it by the Spirit, then the kingdom of God is upon you. He's telling them that, right? The kingdom of God is upon you. So the Messiah is here. The Christ is here. If you see me doing these things, this is the evidence. I'm taking out the evil. What he's, in, what he's essentially doing is binding the strong man in his house. Satan's world. He's binding him every single step of the way. Okay? And when we get into the mystery in the next, the next study, what Satan wasn't aware of everything that was actually happening. He was literally falling into the right into the palms of what God wanted. He was doing his 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 exact nature. So it was in, it was inevitable. But what happens here is Satan decides to go into a man. And you will find it in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So that he had decided that 
So Satan enters into Judas so that he can betray Jesus, so that he can get him killed. That's the whole point. He's trying to, as Jesus is binding the strong man, Satan's going against him with one of his own followers to take him out. But he's not aware of what he's doing to himself. He's, in essence, binding himself. It's pretty amazing. So, two major themes that I really want people to understand. And in 1 John, you'll find it, but this is it. This is what we do know. Jesus died for the sins of mankind. We know that. That's the most common thing you've probably heard. Jesus came and he died for your sins. And if you accept him, then you, you know, can be one of his and be forgiven. Right? That's the yes. one. Yes. Yeah. That's the most common understanding. The core kind of that's the gospel message. Yeah. Yes, that is the gospel that you can be saved if you ask. Um, he also went and fought with the devil. Yep. He also was here to do away with the devil. And in First John, chapter three, verse eight, it says, "Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil." So that pretty much wraps up where I want to take this study on Satan, because when we get into the the later epistles and into Revelation, where you hear about the destruction of Satan, when I get into the Olivet Discourse, which is in Matthew 24 and 25, when Jesus talks about the end of the age, you're going to learn more about what's happening and the binding of the strong man and how Satan not only was the ruler of some of the highest nations like Babylon and Assyria, you know, and the all of those that came after Israel. But eventually he got to the core of the nation of Israel too. And the chief priests murdered God in the flesh. And he so he was literally that ruler, the prince of the power of the air over the nation of Israel and over the Roman Empire simultaneously. And God was able to not only wrest it out of Satan's hands, but he literally constructed a brand new temple and started a whole new age in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye. So I'm really interested, Ralph. You said you did some research on the names of Satan. I did. Let's tie up this study with some some extra info, can we? Okay. Well, there's a lot of different places that I went for this. <clears throat> One of them, the original term, the original Hebrew term, Satan, Hebrew, is a generic noun meaning accuser or adversary. The word is derived from a verb meaning primarily to obstruct or oppose. Uh, when it is used without the definite article simply Satan, the word can refer to any accuser, such as which goes to the Ha Satan. Mm-hmm. When it is used with the definite article Ha Satan, it usually refers specifically to the heavenly accuser, the Satan. Mm-hmm. So that goes that speaks to uh, uh, where you were talking about the Ha Satan, and and I think you're right when it comes to leaving a word out, putting a word in, uh, it changes changes the meaning. There are a lot of names for um, uh, throughout the ages for the devil, um, the the devil, Lucifer, Satan. Uh, <clears throat> so, it, but is, they is all say Mephist- adversary. Is it Mephistopheles. That sounds Mephistopheles, correct. yes, yeah. that is also a name. 
um, that, uh, and, and it's different in different books too. So, you know, if you go in the Quran, it's one word. If you go in this, you go in that. But in the, um, looking for my note on this one. While you're looking at, oh, did you find it? The rabbis usually interpreted the word Satan as it is used in the Tanakh as referring strictly to human adversaries. Uh, the Tanakh meaning the Old Testament. Yeah, so the Tanakh, have you guys ever heard that term? No. Yeah, so the Tanakh is, it's like a, what do you call it when you take three different words and you shorten them down and turn it into one? Uh, there, there's a, a name for it. So Tanakh stands for Torah. And then the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, which is the basically the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. So that's what they call the Hebrew, oh, the the Hebrew Bible, the, yeah, the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. They don't like being called the Old Testament, by the way. Yes, I know. It is their testament. They don't like our new one, but they, you know. So to be respectful to uh, someone who is Jewish, say the Tanakh. They'll appreciate that. Um, another thing in Christianity, it said um, the most common English synonym for Satan is devil, which descends from the Middle English devil, from Old English diaphol, uh, which re- in return uh, represents an early Germanic borrowing of Latin diablos. So uh, there's a lot of different words. Beelzebub, meaning Lord of the Flies, is the contemptuous name given in the Hebrew Bible and New Testament to a Philistine god whose original name has been constructed as most probably Baal-zebul, meaning Baal the prince, which you said earlier about the prince. So, you know, a lot of the stuff Lord that I've— Lord of the I've, Flies, I haven't heard that one. I read uh, the really? book. Right. Yeah. right. You didn't—yeah, uh, uh, that's—to me, that's the most common— the Lord Beelzebub, of the Flies. Lord, yeah, Beelzebub. Not, it, it's not usually a the for whatever that matters. It's just Lord of Flies. Yeah. yeah. And it says the Synoptic Gospels identify Satan and Beelzebub as the same. The name Abaddon, meaning place of destruction, is used six times in the Old Testament, mainly as a name for one of the regions of Sheol. Uh, and Revelation describes Abaddon, whose name is translated into Greek as Apollyon, meaning the destroyer, as an angel who rules the abyss. So, I mean, this... There are, I, I found seven different definitions, and then I found about 30 pages that go back through time from early man all the way through different parts of time where they talk about different religions and what they thought about uh, good and evil and what their interpretation of what at that point the devil was because they didn't have a word for it in the beginning. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, uh, serpent being one, um, I did some research on that. It's not actually a snake. Did you know that? No. I thought it was. Mm -hmm. It's not. It means shining, shining one. It was a heavenly being. We always see the pictures of the snake. You even Mm -hmm. made one. It doesn't mean it. It's not a snake. It's a shining one. So it that (laughs) must be an earlier form of the word serpent. Mm -hmm. So how did that turn into snake? Snake. Who knows? I have no clue. Yeah, that's I just, interesting. I, I just done you know a little bit of research on the serpent, and it literally means the shining one. It's kind of like if you do you remember when we tell the story of, in Numbers whenever uh, uh, God told Moses to to make a bronze serpent, yes, and to stand it up, you know, and we always see the snake. Yeah, it's a bronze shining thing. So I mean, I guess it's meaning of a snake or shining snake. It's well, it could weird. be bronze and a bronze staff that shines in the sun. Yeah, I was thinking it's kind of a shiny material, kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah. We always think of a snake. Mm-hmm. 
you know. I mean, and uh, look, I mean, for centuries, people have thought it to be a snake. I'm just telling you what I've researched and what I've seen, whether it's a snake or not. I mean, I don't believe yeah. that a physical snake curled up on a tree and was like, hey, eat the apple. Like, I don't. Right. <laughs> no, I always thought good... that was just, just uh, uh, as a, like a spirit. Yeah. Have you gone back through Strong's Concordance and seen what the, what that particular trail is? You know what? I haven't, but I sure can. What? Let's do it now because oh, yeah. I have my handy dandy Strong's Concordance. I'll just, it doesn't take a minute. It doesn't it, matter. I'll just cut the air out. Exactly. Yes, thank you. He'll cut the air out to where we'll all choke and die in here. <laughs> Not that over, buddy. Only if, only if you're bad. <laughs> all right. So it says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Let's see. See what the serpent is, H5175, a snake. <laughs> Nakash, a snake from its, let's see, read more. Yeah, it looks like, oh, well, there's another reference um, for Nakash, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Sounds like a dragon. I don't know. Well, that was interesting. Wouldn't be the only biblical dragon, just maybe the first one. Yeah. Well, by the time this episode airs, um, it'll be, you know, next year by the time we release it, but um, perhaps we'll have some sort of a forum or something that people can send in any questions or, you know, things. Uh, We're always going to continue to study. That's what Bereans do, you know. Well, and I like that we're doing this. And one of the things you said in the very beginning was... uh, there are so many different interpretations. Even a man reads it, uh, uh, and they interpret it on their own as their as, as the reading, and that's why uh, studying is something you should do. And I don't think you should study alone, um, because you know, lean not on your own understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, find other people who are searching the same thing. Find people that have studied and know more, and uh, and and also trust but verify, uh, but continue studying. Yeah. To finish that verse that you said, lean not on on thine own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Absolutely. So we give, we ask God for that help, and he helps us with that. So without being, you know, too, uh, you know, we get, you know, jokey in here, and which I am going to be bringing some really killer jokes here in just a second. I like her joke earlier. Yeah, which one was? Yeah, the pencil. The pencil. Why don't you write with a broken pencil? Because it's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I wish other people would bring bad jokes in here. Make <laughs> sure to put a rim shot in there for you, Andy. Uh, so something I want to bring up just so that we know. Uh, so when these all get um, released, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was just in a marketing class over the weekend, and I, I double-checked the information with two other sources that I know, and I also looked it up on Apple. So Apple is changing the way it does podcasts. Mm-hmm. They want more people listening. So what they've decided to do now is when you go there, they're going to play the first 60 seconds of a podcast. So if you want to catch a listener at the beginning of all of our podcasts, the first 30 to 60 seconds should be the hook that gets them to listen to the rest of it. So you may want to think about... Well, double check what I've said, but also um, <laughs> it reminds put, me of Andy saying, "Hey, some. kids, Santa isn't real." <laughs> <laughs> so just that at the front of every episode. Yeah. There you go. I, I couldn't get myself to do it. I just felt too bad. You just can't. You don't want a little kid to yeah. accidentally hear our. Yeah. <laughs> mom, <laughs> mom. Yeah, those jackasses. <laughs> oh wow! All right, so here is the. I've got two jokes. All right, and this one, <laughs> this one is a good. One. I don't know. Do you guys remember the little kid that was selling the damn fish? 
Yes. All right. Well, this same kid, he decides to sell a lawnmower, and it's the same preacher. And he comes walking by, and it's got this sign on it. It says, lawnmower for sale. So he goes to the young man, and he says, well, he says, "Uh, I see you're selling a lawnmower. He said, does the thing run? He goes, yes, sir, it sure does. He says, well, if you don't mind, he said, I'd like to start that thing and listen to it. I, I need a lawnmower. He said, you go right ahead. So that preacher just starts yanking on that thing. <laughs> you guys ever, have you ever done that? Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. I mean, have you ever done it so many times that it just, you thought you were going to die? You yeah, know, I stop after off. a few and take yeah. the spark plug. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so the, the preacher looks at the boy and says, I'm, uh, son, I'm sorry. The thing doesn't start. He goes, well, preacher, he said, I, he said, I hate to say this to you. He said, but, uh. You're going to have to cuss it. That's the only way you can get it to start. He goes, well, son, listen. He said, I've been saved a long time. He said, I haven't used those kind of words in a long, long time. And he said, well, give that thing a few more tugs and it'll come back to you. (laughs) 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 That was given to me by my father-in-law, Don Rhodes. No way. Yeah. He even said I could use it on the podcast. Wow, used with permission. Yes, yeah. So uh, there were these... Uh, three <laughs> nuns. I apologize to all the Catholics. Uh, I mean, no disrespect. I've knocked just... off a habit once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. I just realized what that meant. <laughs> habit. I just... <laughs> uh, so these three nuns are sitting around talking, and the first nun looks at the other two and says, you're never going to believe this. I was cleaning the father's room, and I found these pornographic magazines. And they're like, oh, no. And the second nun goes, well, that's not as bad as what I found. She's like, I found a box of condoms. And they're like, you're kidding me. What did you do? She said, well, I poked a hole in every one of them. And the third <laughs> nun fainted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I, that's, that's kind of a classic joke. I think I've heard a couple forms of that one yeah, over the years. Yeah. yeah, I like to take them and sort of like re-spin them in my own way. I was trying to find a way to do it to Baptists, but... I just couldn't find a way because they don't ever clean the preacher's room. Yeah. You yeah, can't get close the to the preacher's room, It's not man. the same, like, gaggle yeah. of women kind of thing. Yeah. Gaggle. That was... <laughs> That's it good. could be a giggle. What is it? <laughs> that would be girls. That would be like... Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. That ends our study of Satan. Uh, that was a long TikTok, uh, you know. It wasn't a rebuttal, but it was a fun study. I, I'm, I've learned a lot that from it. That was neat. Yeah, it was really neat. And so the next study, we're going to get into the mystery that was given to uh, Paul the Apostle that he shares with everyone. And I'm also going to break into a little bit of Revelation so that you can understand that mystery. And then after that, we will get into the Olivet Discourse. I'm super excited about that one, about the end times and what Christ says about it. It is fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. And then, uh, Andy, as I told you, we were going to get into the Siege of Jerusalem. That is part of the Olivet Discourse. It's really cool. Yeah, that's cool. And I'm excited to hear a little bit about Revelations, too, because that is gobbledygook, and it doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) Well, tune in, and there will be a revelation. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for sure. So thanks, Cherry. See ya. You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks, Ralph. Cheers, mate. Andy, we'll see you on the next episode of the Burrows of Berea. Ta-da.